0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Hassan Alam, Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Alam currently works in the Division of Trauma, Emergency Surgery, and Surgical Critical Care at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Alam is a recognized expert in induced hypothermia for trauma and has a prolific laboratory devoted to the study of this subject. For an excellent review of this topic, I would direct readers to his article entitled Hypothermia in Multisystem Trauma, which appeared in Critical Care Medicine in 2009, Supplement Volume 7, pages S265 to 272. This article focuses on the role of hypothermia for hemorrhagic shock in particular. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Lam. It's
1: a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.
0: You know, the topic of hypothermia following trauma seems to have kind of a Jekyll and Hyde quality to it. All surgical residents and trauma fellows know that hypothermia is one of the variables in the lethal triad of hypothermia, acidosis, coagulopathy. And yet, there's an increasing number of articles suggesting a protective role from cooling following any number of acute conditions, most recently, of course, cardiac arrest. So what is it? Is it a Jekyll or Hyde?
1: (laughs) So just like most things in in medicine, the story is not uh, simply good or bad, uh, friend or foe. Uh, It comes down to the details. So let's look at it in a little bit more careful fashion. Uh, It comes down to whether hypothermia is a cause or effect. Trauma patients uh, do get cold, and when they get cold, there's a reason why they're getting cold. Another way of looking at it is that uh, to maintain your body temperature above the surrounding temperature, uh, you have to spend some uh, ATPs. It's an energy dependent process. And when the system runs out of energy, your body temperature starts going down. So, uninduced hypothermia, spontaneous hypothermia, spent, uh, hypothermia that sets in after injury, is a marker of injury severity. The sicker you are, the more energy depleted you are the less likely you are to maintain your body temperature and the temperature will go down. Look at it as, uh, another way of putting it is all dead patients are cold, but not all cold patients are dead. Now, if we induce hypothermia as a therapeutic modality, that's different because it's not, they're cold not because they run out of ATPs. They're cold because we cool them down. And it's a fundamental difference uh, and generates a lot of confusion. We cool patients down every day for cardiac surgery, for circulatory arrest, for, uh, for neonatal surgery, uh, organ transplant, so on and so forth. And those patients are very cold, but it's clearly not the same as patients uh, who are cold just because they're in the process of dying. Um, so we've got to separate the spontaneous hypothermia from therapeutic hypothermia, and I think that's where a lot of confusion lies.
0: And your article um, in discussing hemorrhagic shock, uh, mentions that treating hemorrhagic shock is not as simple as controlling the bleeding and then simply refilling the tank. Why? What are aspects that are particularly relevant in how one goes about resuscitating from hemorrhage?
1: Uh, that's, that's something that we are um, becoming more aware of now. Historically, uh, when we didn't know much more about it, it was perceived as just filling the tank. You lost some blood, you fill it up. Doesn't matter what you fill it up with and how you do it, what rate, to what endpoints. And now that we have the tools to study the biological system, we realize that it's one very complicated, uh, second very interconnected, uh, and uh, it's got a lot of uh, redundancy, but at the same time we affect it in ways that we usually don't perceive unless we look for it. So ischemia causes a lot of changes at the cellular level, at the organ level, uh, and so does reperfusion. And you can look at resuscitation as as a form of reperfusion, but then resuscitation also is a form of pharmacological intervention. All the uh, uh, things that we give to the patients, blood products, uh, plasma, crystalloids, each and every one of them uh, has got fairly profound effect at the cellular level. So clearly, it's not uh, simply uh, just uh, filling the tank back up, uh, replacing the lost blood. It, it's all the consequences the ripple effect the downstream effect of, of, of the interventions that we uh, institute uh, from giving blood back to uh, tissue trauma uh, and the various drugs and fluids that we give uh, so difficult to summarize it in, in, a, in a very short form uh, but clearly uh, the the uh, uh, the effects of uh, resuscitation are way well beyond just filling the and, tank and up. where does cooling fill in, fit into all this so cooling fits in at all different levels so um, uh, again it's a very non specific but fairly uh, uh, strong modality that affects uh, multiple cellular pathways during the ischemic period and during reperfusion uh, it affects um, uh, inflammatory uh, pathways cell survival pathways apoptotic pathways uh, um, and um, a number of innate uh, cytoprotective pathways. Uh, what is very interesting is it also affects a transcription of a variety of genes, mostly in um, metabolic pathways, which makes sense. Um, cooling affects metabolism, but also in inflammation uh, and cell survival. And the, uh, the downstream effect of those gene alterations, uh, you can measure them for hours and days afterwards, even after the hypothermia has been reversed. So the effect of hypothermia just don't last for the duration of hypothermia, but lasts we, um, many hours and many days beyond that. And
0: does it matter the depth of hypothermia?
1: Oh, of course it does. So uh, hypothermia, like most of the treatments, is not a yes, no, uh, good or bad. Uh, it depends on when you institute it. Um, it depends on how rapidly, to what depth, how you reverse it, how long you maintain it. All of those variables are equally important. Uh, one of the most important ones is the depth. Uh, absolutely, it is one critical variable.
0: And, you know, I'm a surgeon, so, you know, more is more, so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the uh, uh, the uh, uh, One thing that you'll learn uh, uh, is that there is Nothing that doesn't have any side effects. So for a biological system of a mammalian type, hypothermia is a fairly non-physiological uh, state. Uh, we Our systems are programmed to be at a normal body temperature, and, and hypothermia is non-physiological. So there are consequences of those, uh, of uh, not being at optimal temperature. Those have to be weighed against the benefits. Uh, if you really cool down uh, the body, and we've done large animal studies cooling them down uh, to uh, ultra-profound levels. And just to put some numbers there, so we're all talking about the same thing. Mild hypothermia is about 33, 34 degrees. Um, Deep hypothermia uh, is in 20s. Profound hypothermia is 10 to 15 degrees. And ultra-profound is is anything below 10 degrees. So for uh, bleeding, uh, progressing to cardiac arrest, really massive blood loss. Uh, Your best results are uh, with profound hypothermia about 10 to 15 degrees. And we pers- we did the same thing, you know, more is better, so we cooled the uh, uh, animals down to five degrees, and these are human-sized uh, pigs uh, with massive blood loss. Not only the survival was worse if we cooled them down to five degrees, um, but the uh, cognitive function uh, was much worse in those animals. So there is this ill-defined cold injury that happens, and it's... Uh, uh, Crystal formation in the cells uh, when water starts crystallizing, it expands, it ruptures the cells. So th- th- there are all those uh, things that happen when you get down to freezing temperature. So freezing is not very well tolerated uh, by by cells. Um, but once you eliminate the really ultra profound cooling, then it comes down to choosing the right depth for the right indication. Uh, so there are a lot of indications where mild hypothermia would work, uh, such as. Um, out of possible cardiac arrest, uh, traumatic brain injury, and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, mild hypothermia is the way to go. Uh, But when you have lost your blood pressure, you've gone into cardiac arrest, and the only thing that might save your life uh, and maintain viability, give surgeons time uh, to do life-saving interventions is profound hypothermia. And then we're talking about 10 to 15 degrees Celsius core temperature. And outside of the
0: cardiac arrest literature, is there literature? with human trials, mm-hmm. looking at hypothermia following injury?
1: Well, the, the use of hypothermia in certain fields uh, is very well established for non-trauma, uh, or let's put it that way, where your, tr- where your injury is controlled and predictable, uh, namely surgical insult. The Big difference is that hypothermia is then induced prior to the ischemic insult. We do it for cardiac surgery, transplant surgery, um, circulatory arrest for neonatal uh, surgery you know exactly when you're going to create the ischemic insult uh, and you induce hypothermia as a protective strategy ahead of ischemia trauma is very different uh, the ischemia has already um, set in the patient is already in shock they're already losing blood have lost a lot of blood body temperature is already going down and then you have to in that chaotic situation um, you have to cool the body down before the time runs out so the logistical challenges are are much much more uh, uh, daunting But the basic concept is still the same. Cooling is protective. Um, It is not, whether it benefits or not, is how to do it. Now, the downside in trauma patient is that cooling also has an effect on coagulation system. It's ill-defined, but at some level, cooling will make your coagulation proteins not work as well and make you more prone to bleeding. In a trauma patient, that's not always a good thing. But if you'd cool the body down to such a degree where you're not dependent on blood circulation to maintain the viability of the organs, then you really don't care whether they're bleeding and how cold they are or how coagulopathic they are uh, because you have a system that's not dependent on blood supply. They're in a circulatory arrest. And once you fix the problem and control the bleeding, then you can warm the temperature back up and the coagulation will come back to normal. So it's a reversible uh, problem. The clinical trial for, um, for hypothermia and trauma apart from traumatic brain injury uh, f- for hemorrhagic shock, that the first trial is now registered. Uh, it's been many years in the making. Uh, it's being uh, led by Sam Tisherman, the University of Pittsburgh, which you know very well that are participating in this thing. And it, it's not an easy trial to get approved. It's not an easy trial to get funded, but the funding is now in place. The approval is in place. And now it comes down to the institutional level, getting IRBs to, to sign off on it and then to uh, recruit patients. Uh, hopefully, it'll be uh, uh, five or six centers doing it um, after the initial center. And once we figured out the feasibility of this trial, preclinical data is robust. It's you know many decades of data in uh, increasingly complicated large animal models, uh, and all shows the same thing: uh, profound hypothermia in massive blood uh, loss situation uh, maintained viability of the organs. Uh, provide surgeons time to fix the injuries, and it's a life-saving strategy. Uh, and now we're at the cusp of translating it into, into clinical reality. Uh, and it's, it's, it's challenging and it's daunting, but I think the pieces are in place.
0: But that's, that's for deep hypothermia following essentially circulatory arrest. Correct. What about animal data or human data, um, looking at mild hypothermia following, say, traumatic brain injury or some other non-circulatory arrest trauma?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's controversial. Um, we have a, a, a lot of smaller studies, single-institutional uh, trials, uh, showing advantages of mild hypothermia and traumatic brain injury, and the large prospective randomized trial in adult patients with traumatic brain injury did not show an advantage. And it's been uh, debated and criticized and back and forth about when the hypothermia was induced, how long did it take to do it. If you start at eight hours after injury, and it takes you X number of hours to get to your target temperature. By that time, the damage is already done and it's too little, too late. Um, There is a paper in New England Journal of Medicine for pediatric traumatic brain injury where it actually showed some uh, worse outcome in in, in, uh, kids with traumatic brain injury that were cooled. So in in specialized centers where the systems are in place, they have shown advantages, and in larger studies where you extrapolate it to multiple centers, they've shown disadvantages. And for most of this this kind of a, um, data, what it comes down to, there's subgroups in there that benefit from it, but not everyone does. Uh, at our own institution, we have protocols for inducing mild hypothermia and traumatic brain injury patients as a second or third tier approach. Um, after we've tried um, pharmacological intervention, hyperosmotic therapy. Um, for ICP control. For ICP control. And we typically focus on patients who are young. Um, the subgroup that showed an advantage or trend towards advantage in the prospective randomized trial uh, was younger patients. So I think if you focus on those patients, but still I, I urge people to do it uh, under protocol and guidance and, and uh, uh spend some time and effort into identifying the cohort of patients that would benefit from it. I think it's clear from the data that all comers, uh, it, it doesn't make any difference uh, with mild TBI if you induce mild hypothermia. Uh, and there are patients that actually uh, uh, could get hurt from it.
0: Hurt in what sense? Any, any ideas well, why?
1: The, the biggest complication uh, that in, in real life uh, poses a problem uh, is infectious complications. Uh, so herein lies the problem. Uh, if we start cooling uh, a person, even for mild hypothermia, the normal response is shivering. Uh, you don't want to get cold. So as soon as the body starts dropping its temperature when you're cooling it down, the body responds by, sh- uh, by shivering. Now shivering is bad because it consumes a lot of energy and ATP, and, and you're consuming that energy when you're energy depleted. To really effectively induce hypothermia, you have to eliminate shivering either by uh, deep sedation or paralysis, which sort of forces the patient to be heavily sedated on a ventilator. And if you induce mild hypothermia and keep somebody on the ventilator for a few days, and this is not a strategy that you do for just two hours, I mean, if you're going to do it for TBI, which is very different from hemorrhage, where the life and death issues get resolved very quickly within hours. But TBI is a much more of a slow process, both in terms of killing the cells and preserving the cells. So you have to do it for 24, 48, 72 hours. And patient being on a ventilator, sedated, paralyzed for that period of time, it sets them up for ventilator-associated pneumonia and all the nosocomial infections um, for the ICU. So it's it's not without complications. And
0: your article, getting back to the hemorrhage now, uh, actually suggests that rapid cooling followed by rapid reheating Almost immediately following hemorrhage control is probably the way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess given the downstream benefits of hypothermia related to genomic changes and changes in protein expression, I would have thought that you would have to be cool for a longer period of time, Mm -hmm. not just a couple of hours.
1: Yeah, This is very interesting, and I I think uh, uh, we were surprised when we started looking at the the genetic changes. in these animals, the cooling was done fairly rapidly, about 2 degrees per minute, um, down to a uh, temperature about 10 to 15 degrees. Large animal models, we were using uh, humans' uh, cardiopulmonary bypass equipment so we can cool them down to 10 degrees fairly quickly. In, in rat models, we were using a more uh, smaller pump with not as much of a good heat exchange, so we were down to about 15 degrees. But even fairly short period of cooling to that depth two hours uh, or so uh, at target temperature uh, causes fairly uh, dramatic changes in gene expression. You don't have to be cooled for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the rate of cooling and warming is, is, is critical. Now, if for somebody who's bleeding to death or has gone into cardiac arrest, you cannot do slow cooling and you cannot do surface, surface cooling. If there is no surface perfusion to the skin, you can put as many cooling blankets on them, they will not cool. They will die before they get cold. So the only way to cool them down is doing intravascular cooling, and the rate of cooling, especially for the first few degrees, um, has to be really, really fast, about two degrees per per minute. That's an extremely fast rate. The only way you can do that is using a, a roller pump and intravascular access for high volume, either with a closed system or open system, but a high volume circulation. The amount of protection that you get depends on the temperature drop. So once the temperature is down into 20s, you can cool even slowly because you're already protected. But you have to cool the body core temperature down to about 10 degrees. Warming is much slower. We've warmed the animals at different rates, and about half a degree per minute is, is fine, so it's not as fast as the cooling rate. As a matter of fact, really, really rapid rewarming can cause overheating of the brain and uh, worsen the outcome. So you have to pick the right balance between the rate of rewarming. If you warm them way too slow, then they stay on the pump for too long and they get complications, pulmonary complications primarily for being staying on the pump for too long. But about half a degree per minute uh, works just fine. There's data from Pittsburgh showing that once you've cooled them down with really massive hemorrhagic shock and a big insult, then uh, even after you fix the problem, another, you know, 24 hours or so of keeping them uh, cold, just mild hypothermia. So profound hypothermia followed by a period of mild hypothermia is beneficial. I, I, I'm fine with that concept, um, but the reality is if somebody's bleeding to death, once I've fixed the bleeding, then I would just rewarm him, resuscitate him, just like I would do for any other trauma patient. So I'm, I'm cooling them to buy extra time for a life-saving surgical intervention. If I can't control the bleeding, cooling is not going to save him. And once I've controlled the bleeding and they don't have a traumatic brain injury, I don't see a a logical reason for keeping them cold for the next two, three days and buying all the infectious complications of being in a ventilator, being heavily sedated. Um, So I see it as a life-saving intervention for a short period of time, as short as you need to do it. Um, The optimal results are if the the duration of profound hypothermia is kept to 60 minutes. You still have fairly good results, 90 minutes. About 120 minutes or so, the result starts tapering off in terms of survival. So short is better. And, and is these are
0: these are minutes of circulatory rest.
1: Correct. This is a time at the target temperature. What, so not the cooling time. It's, uh, you don't take into account the time it takes to get to the target, but staying at the target temperature of 10 degrees. Um, but it's a, it's a huge improvement on your four or five minute window Mm -hmm. that you have for uh, fixing a problem once uh, there's no blood flow to the brain. So we extend the the window of intervention from four or five minutes of chaos to about an hour, two hours, maybe up to three hours of organ protection, low flow, uh, and excellent surgical exposure. So you can do your damage control operation. And once you've packed everything that you need to pack and sutured everything you need to suture, I think you should just bring the temperature back up and in a nice, controlled fashion, warm the body back up, and and fully resuscitate just like you would resuscitate anyone else.
0: And I assume the same adage is true, that if you overshoot and induce a slight, however slight, hyperthermic state, that's associated with worsened outcomes.
1: Correct. And uh, not only that uh, hyperthermia is, um, is bad, but you underestimate the amount of hyperthermia in the brain. So if you're measuring temperature, tympanic temperature, esophageal probe temperature, and if that's registering hyperthermia, your brain core temperature in the middle of the brain is probably even higher because you're doing intravascular cooling and intravascular warming. So the brain temperature will change ahead of tympanic temperature and esophageal temperature just by a little bit, Um, but you're probably overheating the brain even more than you think you are, and that's definitely bad for a brain that was just ischemic not too long ago.
0: Do you have to worry about uh, coagulopathy as you now rewarm? You just obtained surgical hemostasis and you have to go through the coagulopathic uh, window.
1: The, uh, the short answer is yes, you worry about it. And yes, it's, it's an issue. It just has to be put into proper context. So you shouldn't really do hypothermia of this degree for an injury that you can fix otherwise. Just to give you a practical example, if I open somebody's chest for ED thoracotomy, and they have a hole in the uh, um, ventricle that I can put my finger on it. That patient is not a candidate for inducing hypothermia. I should just put my finger on it and put some stitches on it. The the ideal candidate is a young patient who dies in front of you. You open the chest. They have a salvageable injury, but you can't put your finger on it. You need a little bit extra time they go into a rest. But your best judgment is, yes, I can fix it, but I need more than just a few minutes that's your ideal patient. So once you cool him, they still have challenges in terms of increased infectious complications, altered metabolism, uh, drug metabolism el- elimination is altered. And yes, there is some coagulopathy. The, the interesting thing about hypothermia-induced coagulopathy is completely irreversible. And while you're warming them up, they're on bypass pumps. So, If they bleed from a suture line or they bleed in a body cavity, all you have to do is just put a suction ca- uh, suction uh, yankower in there and just siphon the blood back into the canister. So it's a very controlled system. Once you have them on a pump, if they bleed, you can just go up on the rate, you can go down on the rate, you can add more blood into the reservoir. And more importantly, you can just siphon the the, uh, the blood loss right back into the system. Um, so I don't worry that much about coagulopathy on the way up when you're reversing hypothermia. The bigger issue is if the system is not working very well and you're cooling them down and the The system is not running at full capacity. That's a much more of a tricky thing. Because once they're cold and once they fix the injury, then it's not such a big deal.
0: And does it matter what the mechanism is, penetrating versus blunt?
1: I I think it matters not in terms of the beneficial effects of hypothermia. It matters in terms of uh, the surgical options that you have to fix the underlying injury. Again, going back to the basic premise, hypothermia is not magical by itself. It's not going to save somebody's life. It just offers organ protection and buys more time for the surgeon to do what they need to do. And the chances of surgeon finding a surgically fixable injury are higher for penetrating trauma than for bad blunt trauma. The way the clinical trial has been designed, uh, it would include both penetrating and blunt trauma patients. And there are blunt trauma patients that would be... um, very fixable. Uh, somebody who's got an atrial blowout, for example, uh, it's a very fixable injury. But if somebody's got bad blood trauma with multiple organs injured, brain injury, pulmonary contusion, uh, bony uh, uh, sources of bleeding, then it may fall into that category where you don't have a good surgical option to fix it. So yeah, you will cool him, you'll buy more time, but then you realize that you can't fix the underlying things. So the short answer is hypothermia will offer organ protection both for blunt trauma patients and for penetrating trauma patients, but the chance of surgical success in terms of delivering uh, definitive care is much higher for penetrating trauma.
0: And the next question then is, what if the patient shows up already cold from the environment. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say that person's cold from the environment or from pre-existing shock or a combination therein. in. I saw a study in humans that found that patients who were young, less than 45 years old, with traumatic brain injury, who arrived already hypothermic, had a better neurologic outcome than those who arrived normothermic.
1: You yeah. know, I, I think that's, uh, uh, let's look at it, break it down and look at it two different ways. Uh, if somebody comes in hypothermic, and all they have is traumatic brain injury. Then you know that they're not hypothermic because they're bleeding to death and they're losing ATPs and they're in profound shock. They have, I mean, isolated traumatic brain injury should not cause low flow state and a- ATP depletion. Uh, so purely for isolated TBI patient who's hypothermic, they're probably hypothermic from a variety of reasons, all unrelated to blood loss uh, or blood loss playing a small part. Uh, they are hypothermic because of environmental exposure, maybe the drugs they got, maybe they got intubated, sedation, paralysis, all of those things will take away your uh, thermoregulatory mechanisms and make you cold. Makes perfect sense if you have a protocol in the institution for cooling for those patients to maintain mild hypothermia until you have figured out what's going on. On the other hand, if somebody comes in hypothermic because of polytrauma and in that patient hypothermia is a marker of injury severity just like lactate or base deficit or ph is then i think that is a uh, is a really a sick patient Um, they have high uh, probability of dying from the get-go because they're coming in uh, actively in the process of dying Uh, we would still in the clinical trial include this patient into um, inducing profound hypothermia as long as in the judgment of the surgeon they have a fixable injury. Um, So it's a mixed bag. Uh, If they come in uh, hypothermic uh, from the get-go, it depends on what has caused the hypothermia and it goes back to your first question about whether it's good or it's bad. And I look at it whether it's a cause or it's an effect. So if they're hypothermic because they are near dead, then it's a bad thing. If they became hypothermic because they fell in cold water, and or environment, environmental exposure, uh, then it may be a protective thing for them.
0: Well, let's let's follow up on that very last point you just raised, because we've known for decades, probably longer than that, that the young child who falls into a frozen lake and has a huge immersion time mm-hmm. comes up hypothermic and then ultimately has a very high chance of successful neurologic recovery. So that we've known about the possible beneficial effects of hypothermia for a long time. How come only now, in 2011, are we starting to talk about clinical trials to measure this following injury?
1: Well, that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, The anecdotal reports of uh, hypothermia being protective, as you pointed out, have been around for a long, long period of time. our fascination with hypothermia also goes back, uh, and we know hypothermia is protective. We put food in the refrigerator. We've been cooling things for as far as as we can uh, remember to uh, maintain biological material. So, and for the last many decades, we clinically using uh, hypothermia in uh, multiple specialties. So that's not what the problem is. That so I think I look at it as as uh, two big hurdles. One is the confusion between induced and spontaneous hypothermia. People is, uh, associate hypothermia with, with bad outcomes and it's indeed true if hypothermia is caused by the injury is a marker of injury severity and associated with bad outcome but it doesn't mean that it's the same as inducing hypothermia in a controlled fashion but that's been a big hurdle uh, adopting the concept uh, or lack of uh, adopting the concept by the, uh, by the surgical uh, more specifically trauma community. The, the second is purely logistical and Inducing hypothermia in a controlled fashion in a patient who's dying in the chaotic uh, environment of a trauma bay, uh, it's tough. Uh, you have to have a lot of expertise, tools, gadgets, um, institutional IRB protocol approved in place, the right people at the patient's bedside, and they should know what they're doing. It's, a, it's a technically a very challenging thing to do. So uh, we have adopted hypothermia for control situations, and we use it every day. And we haven't adopted it for trauma because one, it's tough to do, and second, people are confused about it. I think over the last 10, 15 years, uh, with all the preclinical data, with large animal studies from multiple centers, um, with in- ever-increasing uh, complexity of injuries and more sophisticated endpoints, I think the confusion part is much um, much more much less of an issue. I mean, people are better educated about it. Uh, all you have to do is just do a little literature search and you find literally dozens of articles uh, with very strong, well-designed preclinical models uh, showing the benefits of hypothermia. And now we are faced with the logistical challenges of how to uh, design a trial and execute it in a patient population uh, that won't be able to give consent for the procedure. So we're talking about a rapidly dying patient where you can't sit down with them and have a conversation, get them to sign the uh, the consent form. Um, and it's the uh, the challenges of performing such a trial are are fairly um, f- fairly large, but not uh, insurmountable.
0: But you think that uh, right now, outside of the profound hypothermia, which yeah. is what, kind of what we've been discussing, do you think that's are there any other trials that are worth doing on the horizon uh, looking at mild hypothermia, not profound, in the human? Or, or is that done?
1: Uh, well, th- we have done a lot of trials um, for traumatic brain injury, a small uh, single institutional study and, and large prospective randomized trial. We've got an adult trial, we've got a pediatric trial. Um, I don't think people would invest a whole lot more money into doing another trial. They probably would induce hypothermia much faster um, and uh, ob- sort of address the limitations of the of the previously published uh, uh, trials. But
0: even outside of TBI or spinal cord, what about yeah. the patient who just shows up shocky? It, yeah, you know, perf colon I, yeah, something like I, that.
1: I, I think I'm I'm much less convinced about it. Uh, I, I think that's the situation where the pendulum may swing uh, against hypothermia in that situation because uh, we know that there's a potential for increased infectious complications in, in patients with induced hypothermia, and in that situation, maybe just a standard of care resuscitation, uh, goal directed, aggressive with a team at the patient's bedside and rapid control of the source. Uh, maybe a better approach, and that source control could be a source of control for hemorrhage, taking a spleen out or septic shock patient or, or whatever scenario uh, uh, that you can come up with but mild shock especially hemorrhagic shock um, i'm much less convinced that that's the target patient population now there the are a lot of uh, people who support the concept of mild hypothermia for mild to moderate shock and and i've proposed that as a as a possible um, approach, uh, but I'm much less convinced that that's something that I uh, I can advocate um, and feel that convinced about. I'm much c- more convinced about the application of profound hypothermia for, for cardiac arrest, or exsanguinating cardiac arrest, because there's no other strategy that would work. And when you're looking at somebody who's just hypotensive but is still perfusing, there are a lot of other things that are available. So the list of options that are available to me is is fairly fairly long. But patients, once they've progressed to full cardiac arrest, there's really nothing else that works very well.
0: That's kind of interesting because we know that trauma onto itself is a very Mm pro-inflammatory, profoundly immunomodulatory, really immunosuppressive state. And we postulate that one mechanism that even mild hypothermia works through is through uh, suppression of inflammation mm-hmm. and maybe protection of apoptotic mechanisms. One would therefore think that mild hypothermia following injury that's severe enough to cause shock without actual circulatory arrest would be yeah. of benefit. Yeah.
1: And, and you have to just balance it against the uh, uh, what else uh, an Im- immune blunting strategy would do. One thing that obviously comes to mind is that if you blunt the immune response, yes, they'll have less immune-mediated cellular damage but at the same time they would have less ability to clear and fight infections. So where is the sweet spot? Um, and um, I'm not sure about it. Uh, and you know, if I could just do hypothermia and I didn't have to cool them and sedate them and paralyze them and intubate them and put them on a mechanical ventilator. That's a different thing, but to maintain mild hypothermia in that patient population, it comes with a whole package of other things that I have to do. I'll have to keep them sedated, mechanically ventilated uh, to maintain them in mild hypothermic state. Otherwise, they'll shiver and bring the temperature back up. Um, So the way I I look at it is if I have a protocol in place and I'm inducing, or letting them have, maintain mild hypothermia on way to hemorrhage control for a short duration of time, I can see the logic behind it, and that's what I've sort of proposed in some of these previous papers, uh, arguing for where the role might be. But again, I don't see a role for long-term, many hours or many days of mild hypothermia in that patient just to blend the immune response. Because the immune response thing is not just a few hours, a two hours, a three hour thing. I mean, if we have to take that approach, then we have to do it for a longer period of time. And and I think the... the, the, the uh, uh, the risk-benefit ratio doesn't favor that approach as clearly as uh, profound hypothermia for much more severe life-threatening things. So, Yeah, it's a, it's a strategy that has benefits, but it's a strategy that has risk. It's a double-edged sword, and we have to find an application where the, where the benefits outweigh the risk. And clearly they do it for life-threatening bleed. They're not as clear for uh, a non-life-threatening, maybe significant, but not a, not a life-threatening uh, blood loss.
0: And looking a little bit now to the future, um, even if this technology and approach proves to be feasible and efficacious uh, following cardiac arrest due to hemorrhagic shock, as you said, it's it's very labor intensive and uh, it really is, it just takes the chaos of the trauma bay to a whole new level. Anything on the horizon in the next 10 year time frame or so in terms of intravenous therapy?
1: Well, the the chaos thing, it's very interesting. Uh, had you said uh, a few decades ago that we would take somebody, open the chest, make the heart stop, put them on a machine that will do the work for them, and then suture up some uh, grafts into the heart, people would have said, are you crazy? As a matter of fact, this this said it all the time. I mean, this is just a crazy idea. And it failed for many, many, many years, and people invested their entire lives into it, and then it worked. So if the chaos is due to Um, refining the tools, techniques, getting the experience, it's a fixable thing. Same is true for liver transplant, it was chaos. Um, Most of uh, Starzl's original patient that underwent liver transplant died and then it became easier, uh, more predictable and it was a combination of learning from the mistakes, uh, polishing the surgical skills and having the right tools and, and, and people around. So I don't see that as an insurmountable thing. Um, I don't think there's going to be one magical tool or device that will come about that would change the, uh, the game. Uh, there may be. Technology um, changes rapidly and technology changes in, in ways that we can't foresee beforehand. That's been the story with technology change, especially lately. Uh, I mean, if I sit down right now and try to predict what technology is going to do in any sphere, uh, telecommunications, phones, computers, whatnot, you can't predict what's going to happen five years from now. But even with the given technology, what we have right now, I think we can eliminate the chaos and make it more predictable if we have a dedicated team um, that makes it a priority. Uh, the tools and gadgets and the equipment and the roller pump, uh, they are all commonly available in any large hospital, so there's nothing new about it. It's just a matter of the trauma team practicing and getting to know it and having a protocol in place and people who know what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and do it in an efficient fashion. Uh, so, yes, it's chaotic, uh, but with the right training and the right people, even with the currently existing tools, uh, that can be overcome. And if there's a game changer, a new device comes in where you can just do it with one arterial or venous stick or transcutaneous or something, well, that's even better.
0: Or a drug that controls or, apoptosis or, or, or whatever. Or drugs
1: that controls, and that's, uh, I'm glad you brought it up because that's what we're working on right now is pharmacological interventions. Uh, primarily uh, as a result of our work with hypothermia which predates it, and hypothermia is, is extremely effective and a very strong strategy but it's cumbersome and tricky to, uh, to apply. And, if, and DARPA was interested in coming up with a drug or a pill that can be in, uh, in the soldier's backpack, which hypothermia is not at this stage. It's still in a hospital stage uh, with a well-trained team. But if I can put something in, in your backpack, if you're injured, you can either take it yourself or give it to your buddy, not as a definitive therapy, but as a bridge to definitive care, maintaining life for the next two, three hours. Uh, that can save a lot of lives, and uh, the program was uh, labeled uh, "surviving blood loss." Uh, and a number of good things have come out of it, and they all revolve around a pharmacological augmentation of innate pro-survival pathways. Um, there are different uh, drugs and uh, therapies on the horizon that different teams are working on. Our team has worked on um, on acetylation as one of the uh, uh, regulatory mechanism, and just put in an FDA. Uh, application for our phase one clinical trial, but they are very attractive approaches, especially if the agents that we want to use are already FDA approved for some other uh, application. So it's just a matter of taking a drug that we know about, um, the safety profile is well identified, and we have a history using the drug and using it for a different application. Um, I think that's an area that's gonna expand um, very rapidly over the next few years. And those drugs can be modified, they can be um, customized, we can have second, third generation drugs that have a better safety profile and have a more um, uh, uh, target specific pathways that we wanna target. So I'm actually very excited about um, the pharmacological uh, approach. And as a matter of fact, the pharmacological approach um, can be combined with hypothermia. And very intriguing thing right now, we had a NIH um, a meeting at the NIH campus looking at hypothermia. Is how about if we, uh, whether using pharmacological agents will let you use lower depth of hypothermia to get the same benefits? So you change the safety profile. You get the same benefits that you would get for profound hypothermia, but you can get it with much lower temperature changes. Um, nobody has tested it before, but I think those possibilities uh, are, are very exciting. Uh, because we have a f- slew of drugs that we can use uh, because we know about the biological system in much more detail now in 2011 than we did even just five years ago. And we have fairly promising drugs that are available. So whether it's a cocktail of drug or one drug, a little too early to figure out how it's going to go. But I, what I foresee on the horizon is pharmacological therapy as a bridge um, with or without hypothermia. And, um, um, and protocols um, that focus on selecting the optimal optimal patient for the uh, uh, for, for for these interventions.
0: So then, uh, in terms of kind of bringing our conversation to a close here, if I had to summarize, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I would say today there's really very little, if any, indication for mild hypothermia defined as 33 to 35 degrees Celsius following injury,
1: uh, except for traumatic brain injury, and until your institution has a protocol, and, and you select out the patients where the safety profile, the risk-benefit ratio favors it. We do it in our hospital, and I know a lot of hospitals do it. Mild TBI, sorry, mild hypothermia for well-selected patients with TBI. But I don't think there's any uh, indication for doing it in hemorrhagic shock patients. Okay.
0: And uh, indications for more profound hypothermia will, are, are being studied uh, based on Dr. Tisherman's, um, mm-hmm. uh protocol, and he's going to talk to us, I think, in a couple of months, Um, and pending those types of mechanical interventions involving deep hypothermia, Mm -hmm. uh, there are promising um, uh, preclinical trials on the horizon looking at pharmacologic manipulation of the the, uh, cellular death pathways.
1: Yeah. The preclinical trials, uh, there's a fair number of them. Our group alone has done probably about a dozen studies already that we uh, put together as a package for the FDA to review. But again, the basic premise here is that these are drugs and pharmacological agents targeting certain well-defined pathways. And by and large, these are drugs that are clinically available. Uh, so we're not talking about developing brand new drugs. They may be new generation drugs or more sophisticated drugs, but even using drugs that are already FDA approved for some other indication, we can uh, uh preserve uh, cell viability and maintain life uh, in the setting of fairly life-threatening injuries. So the preclinical data in this arena is actually fairly, fairly robust.
0: Excellent. Well, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, We've been speaking today with Dr. Hassan Alam regarding the role of induced hypothermia following injury. Uh, In addition to thanking you again for taking the time, I'd like to uh, compliment you and your group on your ongoing work in this field. This concludes another edition of the East Trauma Cast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.